Folks, life's what happens when you're making other plans and in business and going off to school and starting your career and you want to be one this thing and two this thing and D that thing. And over here is where you end up. I call that success because if it's on purpose, then you've overcome some pressure. And that's what we're talking about with Brent Williams next. Now the heat is on. Let's get cooking. This is Purpose Under Pressure, sharing stories of why we're here, how we fight to make it happen no matter what happens to us. And if you like this show enough to listen, you do me a favor, hit that follow button, the like button, however you need to do it, subscribe, maybe leave a rating or review. It allows other people to know that this show is worth listening to. And we do try to help and inspire and motivate others. So let's get them listening as well. Thank you for doing that. Purpose Under Pressure is brought to you in partnership with Sandler by the Ruby Group, serving sales professionals nationwide from their Akron and Columbus, Ohio, and Jacksonville, Florida locations. You know, selling the right way is an art form. It's something that's very important for your brand. It's not just about income and revenue. And if you're looking to make your company stand out and do well on all assets of uh, what you're trying to accomplish, Sandler by the Ruby Group will help you do that. Check them out online at therubygroup.sandler.com. Welcome to the show, Brent Williams. Brent is our second guest who's in the film industry. And that's, uh, we're going to talk about it in a different film industry than you might think about. But I'm interested to talk with Brent today about accomplishing amazing things uh, under pressure that most of us don't understand. So, Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you, Brent. You're the director of design for designfilm.com. We're going to talk about that a little bit. It's an authorized distributor of 3M architectural projects. products. You're also a musician. You told me a little bit about the blues thing, and you're winning some awards and doing some stuff. I want to talk about that. You're the co-founder of Professional Bicycle Mechanics Association, and you're a nationally known professional bike racing mechanic. Those are all things that you do. Did you know you did that many things? Oh, I'm well aware of it because my <laughs> wife reminds me that I'm doing too many things. <laughs> too many things. And 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 let's talk about that. I, I love the idea that you're a musician and you also do other things that, that kind of pay the bills. What is your purpose in life and why do you do all of these things that you do? Well, it, it's kind of funny. I, I am a very religious-based guy and I believe that it all happens for a purpose. And it is kind of interesting. The job that I'm in now is accumulation of a whole lot of different, you would think, random things that happened over a 40-year career to get me to where I am today. And there have been more than a few times I've kind of looked up and went, why are you having me do all of this weird stuff? And I got into the job that I'm in now, and I went, oh, it all makes perfect sense now. I, I need all these weird little skills that I've picked up over the years. Why does it make sense? Bicycle mechanic, blues musician, why does this uh, at designfilm.com make sense? Um, well, let's, let's kind of do a divergence here for a second. You, mm-hmm. you were saying that you wanted me to kind of tell the people who I am and where I come from. Mm-hmm. And that'll answer a lot of that. Let's go. Um, I was always an avid cyclist. I was a musician from a very early age. My uh, grandfather was a professional musician, which I didn't find out about until after he passed away. Um, And I came out of high school on a full-ride jazz scholarship to the University of Tennessee. And it did not take me long at the university to realize that I wanted to eat after college. And playing (laughs) jazz music really kind of was incongruent with with that whole thing. I come from a family of engineers, and my father said, well, son, before you give up on your dream, why don't you try to go play music professionally? 
And I'm kind of like, who are you and what have you done with my dad? <laughs> um, and so I moved away from home. I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm a Knoxville, Tennessee native. I lived in Memphis for two and a half years trying to play music professionally as a cocky 19-year-old white kid trying to play blues music in black blues clubs. That was interesting. And pretty quickly realized this wasn't going to work. I was, I tell everybody, I was a really good drummer, but I was good enough to know that I probably wasn't good enough to play professionally. Mm -hmm. Um, hear that story a lot. There's a lot of us out there that are pretty good at what we think we want to do and not good enough to do it. Yep. That's exactly right. So during that period of time, though, a funny thing happened. I accidentally, I needed a day job. I was a starving musician and I stumbled into a job tinting windows on cars. And because of that, I was uh, cornered by a 3M Automotive Trades Division rep and said, hey, you're a window tinting guy. You need to know how to install Dynock. And I had never heard that word before. And I'm like, Dynock, what, what is that? Well, Dynock is the wood grain that you would see like on a Dodge Caravan. Mm-hmm. And 3M has had that product in their inventory since about 1947. It's been around a long time. But at that time, this guy says, you need to know how to do this. So I was trained to install Dynock in 1981. And it was kind of neat. Here's this wood grainy, papery stuff. And you learned how to kind of bend it around fenders and things like that. Did that for a couple of years and decided it was time to grow up and get a real job. So I came back to Knoxville. I changed my major from music to architecture and went into design school. Well, to make money while I was in design school, I kept tinting windows on the side, you know, doing my friend's cars and things like that and, yeah. and installing a little bit of Dynock. Um, and then when I came out of college, uh, CAD had just come on, computer-aided design. And if you know anything about the architecture world, you realize that a newly minted architect comes out of college and then basically becomes a slave for the next two or three years. To the big firms. To the big yep. firms, mm-hmm. grinding out drawings in the basement, uh, you know, of, of things the the big guys don't want to draw, toilet That's partitions, right. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, when CAD came along, you didn't need 20 guys in the basement making these drawings. You needed two or three good computer operators because they could copy and paste and they could do a lot more work than humans could. And I, I was coming from an engineering side of my family. I realized in looking around, I said, this technology is here to stay. And it's consumed a ton of the bandwidth in the industry. And my chances of getting a job right now are pretty crummy. And at the same time, I was approached by 3M and they said, hey, we need a dealer in your market. And you already know the business. They'd been in touch with my old boss in Memphis. And they said, would you like to become a 3M dealer? And I'm kind of like, well, sure. Why not? Let's try it. And my honest thought at that time was I would do it for a year or two, then I'd go back and get my master's and the rest would be architecture. Well, life has a funny way of working. You know, uh, two years after that, I had a wife and a kid and life happens. That changes and things. I stayed in the film business mm-hmm. and grew that business to be very, very large. Uh, a lot of it was automotive window tinting, but a lot of it was commercial architectural film. And I love doing that because that's my background. By 1996, the business had grown so large, I decided to shed the automotive side. So I split the company up, sold three quarters of it, stayed with the commercial end of the business. Um, That carried on into the early 2000s. And then a funny thing happened, another coincidence. And I tell everybody, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet because almost none of this was by design. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm listening to your story. It's like life is happening while you're working on something else. All right. of a sudden, you've got this big business you're splitting in two, and and you didn't even know that you were doing that. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so 
uh, again, 3M calls, and I had gained a reputation among the window film dealers, and Al is somebody you can talk to about that. I would speak at the yearly dealer meetings. And what I tended to talk about were the architectural side of things, the design elements that you can do, the things you can do with window film from a creative standpoint, not just purely performance. Hmm. And so I was known by the whole country uh, from the window film dealer side as, as the design window film guy. So 3M calls me up and says, hey, man, we've got this cool new product. You're going to love it. It's purely architectural. It goes on the inside of buildings, not on the outside. It's completely design-oriented. We're going to let you do the presentation to roll it out. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this sounds amazing. What's it called? And he's like, it's called Dynock. <laughs> and I'm like, that. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I've been installing Dynock for 25 years. And they're like, no, 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 no. You've never heard of this stuff before. And I'm like, yes, I have. Yeah. And, and that, that turned out to be the case, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, I've, I've installed Dynock products for 25 years now. And when I was in design school in the eighties, so this is 20 years previously, I was sitting there going, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could get Dynock to do like, you know, arches and columns and things inside buildings. Yeah. Design type stuff. So I'm thinking about that product in that environment 20 years before it was available. Wow. Completely accidental. So here it is. It comes out in 2006, and my little company is one of the first ones in the country that just dived on it. Well, of course, I did the presentation, and I I kind of knew how it worked. I knew where it would work well, and so we pumped up our sales pretty quickly. Um, also, during this whole period, I'm a business owner, so mm -hmm. I'm picking up lots of little odds and ends of skills. I mean, in case in point, when I opened my first shop, I couldn't find a drywall contractor to do the drywall. So I went to the library, literally checked out a book, learned how to do it. We yeah. did it ourselves. We learned how to do these things. We look at YouTube now for that. Right. It's the same idea. That's how we learn things. Yep. I wonder how my drumming skills would be today if I'd had YouTube as a student, right? Or AI. Yeah. At least let them do the drumming for you. Yeah, really. Uh, I, the funny thing is, is uh, next couple of months, I'm doing two presentations to national professional groups on how AI is going to impact the architecture world. Yeah. Yeah. You so, saw it happen with the CAD design coming in, and now you're seeing it happen now. So, yeah. right. Okay, so you're well, building there, this but company. But there's another thing in between there, too. From CAD, we went to BIM. We went from two-dimensional oh. design, which is what has always happened, to what we have now, which is three-dimensional design. And that shift happened about 15 years ago, and the industry still hasn't caught up. Hmm. So, anyway, long story short, we became a very big Dynock dealer. And I was recruited at one point away from 3M to become the leader of their program for these kind of products for our biggest competitor. So I completely accidentally became in charge of the American program for a global entity. I was working for a Japanese firm. And so I'm at, I, not only am I not at the local level, I'm not at the regional level, I'm not at the national level. Holy cow, I'm at no. the global level. How did yeah. I get here? <laughs> um, funny quick side story. The first time I was in Japan with this new company, the very first day I'm there, they said, the boss wants to meet you. I'm like, the boss? Yeah, Mr. Yasuda, this is a $3.5 billion company, and the CEO wants to meet me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm thinking, I'm a tiny cog in this huge machine. Why does the CEO want to meet me? So I get ushered into this office to this meeting. The office is massive. Yeah. His desk you could land an aircraft on. 
And there's this diminutive Japanese gentleman and he stands up and he sticks his hand out and he goes, Brent son, how are you? Have a seat, son. And I'm like, wow, his English is incredible. Yeah. And I thought the son comment was kind of funny. And I'm sitting there and it turns out Mr. Yasuda had managed uh, oil refinery operations for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And he lived in Houston, Texas for eight years, which is why his English was so good. Yeah. And that's also where the term son came from. Mm. But the funny story was he was a rabid NFL fan oh. and his Texas Oilers are now our Tennessee Titans. And so all he wanted to meet me about was to talk NFL football. He wanted to talk f- football. That was it. Yeah. Did you, did you, were you able to accomplish that for him? And yeah, uh, we did. Yeah. I did okay there. And the funny thing was every time I went to Japan after that, I wasn't the biggest NFL fan. I follow college ball, but not really NFL. So every time I'd fly to Japan, the whole 13 hour flight, I'm sitting there with my laptop going, trying to say, hey, what do out. we do now? Where are we at? Who traded for who? How many so games did the something. Browns lose this year? Right. Exactly. <laughs> So, so you're, so you're building this company, you're building this big company, you, you, you're, you're, you're making it stronger. And it's interesting to me, you've said it a couple of times. I've heard you say it a couple of times. You said by accident. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's by accident? Do you think it's part of purpose? Well, there is a saying in the business world that you make your own luck. Mm -hmm. And I, I always did work hard and I had a vision for kind of where I wanted to go. And I also was kind of, I had enough imposter syndrome going that I was always a little insecure. So I was always looking around to go, am I doing this right? Am I sure I'm doing this right? Is there anything else I need to do? Is there anything I need to learn? And I I have to admit, one of the quote luck things was my father. Uh, My father was a life fellow in the IEEE. Dad actually was director of R&D on the first commercial PET scanner. And so any PET scan in the country done today traces its history back to dad. And when I started my first company, I needed seed capital. So I went to dad, like any mm-hmm. good kid would do. Hey, mm-hmm. Pop, I need some money. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you want to start a company? Okay, um, here's the deal. I'll loan you the capital you need, but two rules. I'm like, uh-oh, rules? He said, yeah, rule number one, you're going to pay market rate because it needs to be a real-world situation. Okay. Rule number two, while you are repaying the loan, you will read every book I put in front of you. Is that right? Yep. Wow, that's cool. And so literally over the next two years, while I paid off that first $10,000 capital loan, I got an MBA from my dad. Yeah, because he's been there and done that. He oh, knows what you need to know. And the stuff that he's dropping in front of me is like Peter Drucker Gold. and the other giants of the, of the business that's book cool. world. And. I, you know, at the time I'm just kind of grumbling on, damn, dad sent me another book. Oh God, I can't believe this. And then 10 years later, you start to go, wow. Now I get it. I remember this 20 years later, you're going, holy crap. I I wouldn't be here today without it. Now at 40 and dad's gone. I'm like, where would I be without what he did back then? You going to do that for your kids, Brent? I have done the best that I can. Um, my, my, I have two sons and a daughter. The daughter's in the middle. The daughter is married to an entrepreneur. The two of them own a martial arts school. They're doing really, really well. My two sons are fine artists. And when they both wanted to go into the fine arts, I did my best to dissuade them. I'm going, look, your dad's a fine artist too. I get it. (laughs) It Go get yourself an education (laughs) and something that'll pay the bills and do the fine art thing on the side. But they're out there and they're doing a good job with it, you know, and, and they're having a good time, but. 
there's times that I go, I, I didn't handle this the way dad did. I wish I'd done it different. I think that's on purpose too. And I think that's okay. Yeah. We've all got to find our own, our own way. I'm interested now in, in pressure. Okay. Um, purpose. I love the purpose. I love the purpose of, I want to do what I want to love to do, but I want to make money doing it and take yes. care of my family and do the things you said you have to eat. And I think that's important. I think too, too many times people spend way too much time trying to fill their passion. We tell our kids today, Hey, you got to do, I think Steve Jobs said it. You got to love what you do. I don't know that that's always the case because what you really love to do doesn't always pay the bills, but you've been able to figure out a way to do uh, a little bit of what you love and pay the bills too. Well, I'd probably put a little bit of a disclaimer in there. I agree with Steve Jobs in that you have to love what you do, but what you do doesn't necessarily have to be what you're passionate about. What you're passionate, that's right. Right? And so, because if you don't love what you do, you're going to suck at it. You're just not going to have the drive to do it. But then again, you know, like in my case, if you asked me, held a gun to my head and said, what is it that you want to be more than anything? I would say a professional musician. Yeah, play the blues, right? Right. But the thing about that is, is I'm enough of a pragmatist to realize, you know, I play in a really good little band and we're really lucky if we make 500 bucks a night and there's five people in the band. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you drive two hours, you set up for an hour, you play the gig, you tear everything down, you drive home, you've got seven, eight hours in it. You made a hundred bucks. And you can't wait to do it again. The finances don't work. You don't play music because you make money at it. You play music because you love the music. So where does the pressure come in? Where does the pressure in your life come in to, that's gotten in the way or at least uh, maybe hardened that stone to where you're at now? Well, the pressure in life and especially pressure in business comes in many, many forms. And, you know, the first pressure from business pressure, I remember, was going to dad and saying, dad, I need some money, you yeah. know, asking for the loan. Um and over the years, it's like, wow, I need this new piece of equipment. It's a quarter of a million dollars. Well, that's a big deal. I was talking to one of the, one of my customers because now I'm at the distribution level. The people I talk to on a daily basis are the people that are doing what I was doing 30 years ago. And the beautiful thing about my job today is it's all basically gestalt. I don't ever give anyone advice because advice is just telling somebody off the top of your head what you think. Gestalt says you're going to share experience. And so what I'm telling my dealers is, hey, when I did what you did, do this. And more importantly, from a pressure standpoint, when I talk to my dealers, I'm able to say, when I was going through the stress that you're going through now, here's how I felt. Here's how I responded. Here was the result. And that's a game changer because no one wants advice. No one wants to be told how to do something. But everyone wants someone that will sit beside them in that season of pressure and say, I've been through what you've been through, and here's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And so the funny thing was, Dad always said, the pressures you're under today prepare you for what's to come, meaning the next thing's going to be worse. And that was wonderful. I love dad for it to death. But the problem was I got psychotic about it because from that point forward, every time something pressure hit me, I'm thinking, God, what's going to be worse than this? Yeah. Right? But it's true. Things tend to get bigger and more stressful, more, more intense as you go through life. You're better equipped to deal with them as time goes along. That's a function of experience. But, you know, at this point in time, I had built I built three companies to million dollar plus sales numbers. Uh, those uh, some people go, well, that's not a big company. Well, 
it is when you're self-financing Big enough and you're me. trying purposely to keep it kind of small. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Too often we, we judge a business success by how many millions of dollars or billions. Right. Of, and that's just not right. I can have a great business and make a few, few bucks. And, and if right. I'm paying the bills and taking care of my family, life is good. It, right. You have to be wise enough to figure out what are your goals. Are you achieving your goals? If your goals are to spend a lot of time with your kids, the amount of cash sort of goes out the window. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to kind of continue the story from earlier, I went to work for the Japanese company. Now I'm working at the global level. Wow, this is amazing. I'm learning a ton about international commerce and how the business actually works. And then a funny thing happened. They brought, they bought an American company. And I, I will never forget, I was called into a meeting in Nagoya, Japan at headquarters. And they gave me a book and they said, we want you to read this real quick and tell us what you think of it. Now, this was the most uncomfortable moment of my life. And you want to talk about pressure. I'm reading this 25 or 30 page booklet, which was a prospectus for the company that I work for to buy uh, a company in the United States that sold similar products. Now, the company I worked for was about three and a half billion dollars in market camp, uh, uh, market cap. And then the company that was being proposed here was about two hundred million dollars. Okay. And I'm reading through this thing and right I'm in sitting in a room full of Japanese engineers and they're all sitting watching me waiting for you silent. And I'm like, this is weird. Wow. And I'm reading through this thing kind of quickly. And I went, huh, I know this company. I know who they are. They're in the design industry. I've interfaced with their reps. They've got a good reputation. This is a fundamentally good deal for the company I work for. And I, and I look up and I slide the book back down and Mr. Yasuda, the boss is there. And he said, Brent son, what do you think of this deal? And I literally inside my head went, okay, the CEO of a three and a half billion dollar corporation just point blank asked this Tennessee country boy what I think of a $200 million acquisition. How the did I actually get here? And that you want to talk about pressure. I mean, it fell on my shoulders. I'm like, everybody's looking at me to make a decision on a $200 million acquisition. And I'm like, oh, what? And so my answer was pretty simple. It was a good deal for the company. They did the, they did the deal. They bought the company. I also told them at that point in time, I said, that probably won't be good for my department because I believe that the new company wouldn't like our products. And that proved to be mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening is about a year later, when the acquisition took place, they moved me and my team, because we are a very small team in this company. We were the only English-speaking department. They moved us into the American company. The American company took one look at our product, not understanding it, not knowing the background, not knowing how it deployed or anything. They just compared it to what they thought they knew, and they went, we're not going to sell this. We're done. And they fired all of us. They cleaned out my whole department. Oh, so suddenly, for the first time in my entire working life, I'm out of a job. And I went from the global level, level to the gutter. That's pressure. That is pressure. When you're sitting there going, where's my next paycheck going to come from? Four weeks later, I sat in a doctor's office when he looked me square in the eye and he said, Brent, I'm not going to pull any punches. You have cancer. And suddenly I realized the whole pressure of being trying to decide this $200 million acquisition thing, nothing, that ain't no nothing. big deal. That was absolutely nothing. That will rearrange your life. When you get a diagnosis that you have cancer, you don't know, you don't know anything. You don't know what you don't know. 
One of the biggest problems we have as managers and leaders is sometimes we're not focusing on leading and we end up doing it for our sales team. How do we coach our people to help them figure out what self-limiting belief that they have that's holding them back from achieving the levels of success that they know they're capable of? Help them flush out what we call their own head trash, that thing that's holding them back. So work with your team, lead by example, watch your team achieve greater levels of success, and watch your team grow, and more importantly, watch your company and your business grow. And luckily, my wife's in the medical field, and we kind of joined hands and said, we're going to fight this, and it started a battle that uh, basically ended in December of last year. I got a clean bill of health. Of 23, right. So I've basically Congratulations, been uh, Brent. about five weeks from getting the news that I am cancer-free at this point. But I have lost <laughs> friends. You know, I, I fought with prostate cancer. And I went through a rough road there. I had surgery, and then it turns out that the surgery didn't get everything, so I got to go through. I was one of the, quote, lucky ones that got to go through radiation as well. And... Uh, I knew what to expect. My dad, again, came from a nuclear medicine background, and dad went through radiation therapy. He had the same cancer, which is why I was looking for it, and we caught it early. And who knows what would have happened if dad hadn't had it. I wouldn't have been checking early. We we might not have found it until years later. So, Brent, had, had you found your – I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm, I'm interested. When, when you lost your job, four weeks later, you got your cancer diagnosis. Yep. Did, how did you pay the bills in between there? That's taking on a lot – in a really finite amount of time, you're out of a job and you have a cancer diagnosis. Were you able to focus on your professional life at the same time? Well, the, the beautiful thing there was I had to hmm. mainly because you know, it, it's a complex dynamic, but I, fu- I drilled down on my professional life really to get my mind off of the C word. Okay. And when I lost the job with the Japanese company, I, at that point, I had realized, you know, as Simon Sinek says, I had already found my why. Which was? Dynoc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had been involved in this product longer than anybody in the USA. It's really funny to this day when people talk about how experienced are you. I'm 25 years ahead of anyone else in the USA with this product. Again, it's accidental, but that's what happened. That's my life. And I come from a design background, which helps. And suddenly, and I was known as the Dynot guy in 3M circles because I had been the guy that did the presentation. So when I lost the job with the Japanese company, I realized one thing. In the United States market, no one understands this product. It's still effectively too new. The design community doesn't get it. The construction community doesn't get it. The public certainly doesn't know anything about it. But in Japan, they use it everywhere. If we did as much with this product here as there, the industry is probably a billion and a half dollars a year. It's huge, but we are effectively still new. And so I realized when I lost the job, my only option at this point is to become a consultant and help other dealers with these products. Um, I'd known Al for a long period of time at that point, but he's case in point. I reached out to Al and said, hey, are you installing any of the product? Can I help you from a technical standpoint? I could answer questions. No one could. And so I did this for two and a half years, uh, and very luckily, again, luck plays a a part, one of my 3M dealer friends that owns one of the biggest dealerships in the country based out of Boston, Mass., 
he called me out of the blue and said, we have a huge Dynock project. We don't really do Dynock. We know that you're in the middle of it. Would you just handle this for us and contract it on our behalf? And I'm like, yes, I will, because I needed the paycheck. That project was almost a million dollars in billables. Hmm. And that paid the bills for a couple of years. Yes, sir. At the end of that period, a funny thing happened. 3M changed the way they were distributing the product. It had been distributed through... Uh, a company that basically was in the wall covering industry. And when it had started, it came to market through guys like me, through window film people. And 3M over 15 years had gone, you know, everything we've tried didn't work. And the most success we had was when we started was with the window film business. And so 3M changed the distribution model and gave the product back to the window film distributors. And this was the next happy accident. Because I was a window film dealer, I had a very close relationship with the biggest 3M distributor in the country. So I pulled out my phone and literally called and said, hey, guys, I understand you're selling Dynock now. Would you like me on your team? And the owner's response was very simple. He said, when do you start? Mm -hmm. And so for the last three years, I've worked for the, the, the parent company's name is Accent Distributing. But I run the division of the company called Design Film. And the products that we sell at Design Film are all purely architectural. So, again, it's kind of like full circle. It's like yes, I'm in a role I never intended ever in my life to be in a situation where everyone in the industry goes, the product expert in this field is that guy right there. Wow, how did I get here? It, it's all sort of happenstance and accidental, but it's really kind of cool to be the one guy in the country that everybody says he's the product expert. Call him if you've got a question. Even it's really kind of comical because at 3M, the management team over my product line inside 3M, they expect you to climb the corporate ladder or they expect you to get out. Frankly, it acts like the military. You go up or you go out. And so in my group at 3M, most of the people there have only been in their job two, three, four years. And what tends to happen is if they do a really good job, they get promoted and they get promoted elsewhere in the company. They go, you know, from window film to filtered air filters or post-it notes. Mm -hmm. Well, because of that, it causes a sad kind of side effect. And that side effect is the people coming in don't really know the product. And there's not a, a an existing base of knowledge for them to pick up. And about the time they start to really get the product figured out, they get promoted. They go away. And so it's it's kind of the running joke. I'll get a call from the 3M lab once or twice a week going, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm going, it's your product, you know, but they're calling me asking for advice. I'm like, how did I get here? How did I get here? I think that might be the title of this show. Yeah. <laughs> how did I get here? I have, as we get closer to the end of this show here, I've got a couple of questions. And one of them, I keep getting this image in my mind of you as a surfer. And I feel like you're out in the waves and the waves are threatening to crash over top of you and drown you, but you decide yeah. to get up on that wave and go. And just like any surfer, <laughs> no matter how long you ride the wave, you end up crashing at the end. Like that's the way you get off the board, right? What, what kind of motivation would you offer advice for business owners, organization leaders that feel like that water's about to crash over um, and are trying to steer their way? I think you could help them. What would you tell them? Well, that's an excellent analogy because there have been a number of times in my life where I have seen the oncoming tidal wave. It's a tsunami. And so we need to take a little bit of a step back and say, it's not so, you're assuming that we're already on the wave. And the thing that you have to mm. realize is you need to be visionary. You need to be looking at what's coming up down the road. You need to see that wave coming 
before you get on it, right? Or as I joke with some people, I said, the problem with the tsunami is you have to make a split second decision. Do I run like hell or do I grab my surfboard? Hmm. And the surfboard hmm. option may be a once in a lifetime opportunity and it also may kill you. Yeah, that's right. But you may never get the opportunity again. And so you have to see it coming and then act on the best information that you have. And then make that decision. The other thing, too, is once you get on that wave, my advice is to ride it for all it's worth because you have two options. You will wipe out or you'll ride the wave into the beach and you'll step off of the board <laughs> and pick it up and go back again. Go back and do it again. Right. It's it, everybody thinks of it because they see, you know, all of the video of guys tumbling off of giant waves and dying, frankly. Mm -hmm. So you know what the bad result is, but what you never see footage of are the good landings. Um it's I, I spent a little bit of time wanting to be a pilot and the joke in the flying world is any landing that you can walk away is a good one. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not quite right because you can be mauled in a crash and that's not exactly a good landing. If you know what I mean, I'm the kind of guy that says, learn the skill, learn the business, whatever it is to the point where you're able to do the surf thing. You're able to ride the surf all the way into the shore and just blithely step off of the board and, and, and listen to all the cheers from everybody that are amazed. And we don't focus enough on that landing phase. We talk about the big hairy, we're on the wave thing, but the end of the, at the end of the day, you have to say, how am I going to end this? I'm nearing retirement age. You know, as we discussed the other day, I'm in discussions to possibly change jobs. And it's one of the biggest decisions I've ever made because I'm in an amazing position with an amazing company. I'm running the program for my product and the whole country basically is sort of looking to me for answers on this weird little hardly known Japanese construction material. But I got an offer from another company that's kind of equally innovative and they kind of put an offer in front of me that I'm like, this is amazing. This is a challenge. It's slightly different, but part of the reason that they're coming to me is I have this very broad knowledge of not only my industry, but all of the little industries that touch it, window film, uh, architectural finishes, car wrapping, for example, because the way we apply the Dynock is very similar to car wrapping. And there's all of these little weird tangential businesses that I have nothing directly to do with, but I know a lot about because of my history. And this one company came to me and, and said, we've got an opportunity where we want somebody to oversee all of our programs. We do all of this stuff and we need somebody that has industry knowledge. And they had come up with this job description and put it before their C-suite. And the funny thing was, it was one of the nicest things I've heard in my whole career. The president of the company said, here's the job description. What do you guys think? Everybody in the C-suite said, call Brent Williams first. And that was their first call. And when they made the pitch, I went, wow, I'm not sure I can turn this down. And when you add to that, mm -hmm. I have three grandsons from age 10 down. And this company that's made me the pitch is local to my hometown. And it's like, I don't have to be on the road anymore. It's not about the money. Now it's about my grandkids. Mm -hmm. I want to spend time with my family. I love the job that I've got now, but you have to be a road warrior. The only way to demonstrate this product is to be out there in the field. And 
And this last year, 23, I traveled 150 nights and I did not travel Q1 because I was undergoing radiation therapy. And I kind of looked at it and sat down with my wife and I said, I kind of think I can't pass this up because it'll take 80% of my travel budget out. And she just said, sold. Yeah. So. Well, good for you. I think it's 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 amazing and, and very much like you uh, to hit the next wave instead of uh, fading off into retirement. I have one right. last question for yep. you, Brent. Um, knowing everything you've gone through, knowing the pressures you've overcome, the hurdles you've overcome, and the success you've had, all by what you say kind of by accident. If you could go now back and talk to that 18-year-old, 20-year-old guy that was uh, ready to be a musician and ready to be, you know, do all those things, and all those things happened to you, but knowing now what you know, what would you tell him? I would certainly say what you think is coming isn't. Keep your mind open. Keep your head on a swivel. Be ready and embrace the change and learn all you can Live a life of constant education. Learn everything that you can about everything. That's the reason I've been successful in my position now is I had gathered all of these little breadcrumbs through the years until at a certain point in time in my career, I had this skill set that no one else had, and it absolutely was not by intent, but I had the right skill set at the time for the job that I had. And by the way, that's exactly what's happened with this new offer is I have the complete set of tools exactly that they're looking for. And if you told me at 18, you know, when you get to this age, you're going to be doing this, I would have told you you were crazy. Yeah, no way. There, there, there's kind of a quick, funny story. We'll use this as our close. When I started in architecture school, my very first semester there, now remember, I spent a couple of years trying to play music, so I'm an older student than most. Mm-hmm. Most of the kids in my class are 17, 18 years old. I'm 21, heading towards 22. And one of the classes I had to take my first semester was called Introduction to Interior Design. I had to take some interior design classes, frankly, to get my grade point average up. (laughs) And this class was Tuesday, Thursday, and it was a lecture. And every lecture was done by somebody else. There was a teacher in the room, but they didn't teach anything. The idea was to give you a well-rounded understanding of all of the players in the construction industry. So we heard from an architect, a licensed interior designer, landscape architect, civil engineer, mechanical engineer. And then they got to product rep from the construction industry. And the product rep worked for a company called Steelcase. You probably know who Steelcase is, Mm -hmm. you know. And she was an interior designer. She'd gotten her design degree, and then she went into sales. And she stood there at the front of the room, and she said, you have to understand that at some point in your life, you are going to have to sell yourself. Now, I didn't hear that part. I heard sell. Sell. And this arrogant 20-something architect wannabe sat in the back of the room and went, I'm never going to sell anything. (laughs) I'm going to design beautiful buildings. And my entire career has been in sales. Yes, sir. And you never, never know. I also, I was forced because of the curriculum in architecture to take a class called technical writing. And I'm like, I don't want to take this stupid class. I'd rather take literature or something creative. Most of my career, I have made a living as a technical writer, and I never would have seen that coming. So again, keep your head on a swivel, be open and accepting to what comes to you, 
learn everything you can and realize that everything connects to everything else. So don't belittle anything. Just suck it all in and go forward. Brent, you're riding that wave and you're going to ride it in a lot of different places. If someone wanted to follow up with you or learn more about you or your company, designfilm.com or whatever you're doing next, how might they uh, find you? The easiest way to find me personally is my personal email address is my first name, Brent, at Arctiva, like the word architecture, A-R-C-H-T-E-V-A dot com, Arctiva dot com. Um, shoot me an email. You can find me on all the social platforms. I'm very, very active on LinkedIn because of what I do. Uh, search for Brent Williams, CSI, CDT, my professional certifications. That sets me apart from uh, the other couple of Brent Williams that are out there. Uh, look for Design Film. That's an easy way to find me. Um, and, and I'm sure there'll be links in, in uh, the topic of your post that people will be able to find me there, too. Absolutely. Brent Williams, designfilm.com. Thank you very much for being on the show. And thanks for, for understanding what you've been through and helping others who are probably likely going through the same things and may not even know it, um, helping them to know that they're not alone in that, in that venture. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It's been a great day. You know, it's one of the cool things about doing this show is you get to meet so many people. Folks, Brent and I didn't know each other. We just found uh, just found each other today as we're uh, rolling this through. And it's just so much fun meeting people that have been there and done that and having the ability to have that conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it as well. That's Brent Williams, Director of Design for DesignFilm.com. He's my guest on Purpose Under Pressure, brought to you by Sandler by the Ruby Group. Sellers are under pressure to perform. And just as Brent just said, we're all selling all the time. Sandler helps you succeed on purpose. You'll find all past episodes of Purpose Under Pressure at brianmediastrategies.com slash podcast and wherever you stream your podcasts. We do this every week and we'll see you again next week on purpose. 